Five Years New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, guys, what's going on? How's hello, Mar- hello. How- how's March? How's March? How's March? <laughs> well, this actually March. comes out, oh, I believe, on the last to, day of February. I know, it's weird, right? It's like, again, this, we talked about this last week. It's weird. It's the 28th, but it feels like it's March 1st. Uh-huh. I don't get it. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's weird. I'm just ready. Wow. I, want, I want February in my rear view. Yes, yes. exactly. I think we can you all know. agree on that. Yes, agree. Fuck out of here, February. <laughs> um, but before we, you know, discuss how it's February, uh, <laughs> Zach, what you, what have you been up to lately? What'd you drink? Uh, I've had a few things really interesting. So um, I had some of the lovely folks at uh, Fast Penny Spirits, which is a, a distillery here in Seattle, send me some of their um, Americano. Um, so two different Amari that they make. One is a kind of a more conventional style Amaro that. You know, I think kind of has like a similar taste profile to something like Amaro Montenegro. Um, mm. Kind of not overly sweet, but not super mm-hmm. bitter. It's definitely not a northern Italian style, like mm. heavy on the bitter herbs and mint and stuff. It's a little more, you know, kind of a little sweeter, but not overly so. Uh, and then they make a Bianca, which is like a much lighter style. I don't exactly know that there's a great and an Amaro analogy. It tastes more like Strega or something to me, like or like yellow chartreuse, hmm. even a little more herbal. Strega. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just exactly. love the name of that. Strega. Uh, just like hot yellow. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. But uh, so I tried those on, the, on their own, and then I've been making a few cocktails with them. Uh, one that I, I enjoyed is kind of a, a riff on a, well, arguably a riff on a View Carre, um, but it's mostly just like an equal parts cocktail that involves rye, cognac, uh, this. Um, uh, Amar, uh, the this sort of Bianca Amaro and um, also Cookie Americano uh, Bianco, and uh, it was really good. I enjoyed it. It was fun to make. Nice. I toyed around with it a little bit, and then uh, you know, also drinking some wine. Uh, drank some uh, Barbera from Catapian uh, up in uh, Osti, mm. um, which is a wine I really enjoy, and uh, cool. has a cute rhinoceros on the label. So you know, can't go wrong. How about you, Joanna? Oh yeah, um, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't, I've had a lot of me- mediocre beverages uh, this past week. But one thing that did stand out was um, it's a mediocre Monday. It's a mediocre Monday. <laughs> um, was uh, a rye from Burnside, which is um, in Portland, Oregon. But this was uh-huh. a, a, a bottle that I had brought home from the office. It was one that we really enjoyed, um, and so had some of that this past weekend. It's really nice. Um, it's Oregon oaked rye, so it mm-hmm. has a very interesting, you know, finish, um, and really nice dried spices and, and kind of like stone fruit in there too. So that was really good. Nice. Yeah. How about you, Adam? So the most memorable glass of wine I had this last week, cause I had, I think I had a cocktail or two, but mm, was, uh, an Etna <laughs> Bianco mm. from, ben- from Benanti. Nice. Yeah. Keith just was like, Whoa, yeah, that <laughs> shit was the bomb. Uh, it was really, really good and just super delicious. I uh, enjoyed it very much. And so that was by far the most memorable thing I drank this week. Where did I have it, Keith? I had it at Union Square Cafe, and my friend Andrea Morris, who's the wine director there, poured it for me. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was really delicious. And, yeah, uh, I just, I don't know. Those wines are so amazing. Mm-hmm. Just really amazing. Um, but that's probably it. I don't think, again, I, I kind of had a mediocre week besides that as well. Or mm-hmm. just, like, things that, you know, maybe it was, was – like, you're with friends or something and you're not, it's more about the socializing and I didn't really, the stuff wasn't that memorable. Right. You know, it was like, okay, like I had a cocktail here or there, but that's about it. You know, like I think mm-hmm. we had like a bottle of red wine. We had like a dinner party and had like a bottle of, like went to a dinner party and like there's a bottle of red wine on the table. I think it was Italian. I think it might've been Chianti, but like, I don't remember the producer <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. 
You know, like those 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 times happen. You know, those times happen. Yeah, and like it's important. Yeah, to be okay with that, right? Like, not every drink you have has to be this like all consuming experience. It can just be like a thing you're enjoying with friends. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Um, but speaking of wine and glass pours, <laughs> like I just had, uh, you know, one of the, the topic we wanted to discuss this week is all about discovery. And this came out of our most recent discussion around sort of millennials and wine mm-hmm. and introduction wine and things like that. And, you know, Zach, you sort of teased that there was too much to talk about in there that is. episode, you know, as, as side conversations. This is one of those. And so um, what we, we want to do is explore two things in this episode. Topic one is... So most wineries, when we meet with them, they'll come to the office or, you know, you'll, you'll talk to them through the, the computer, uh, is sort of – there's a belief amongst the majority of wineries that one of the number one points of discovery – and this was especially true pre-COVID. I'm not sure how much this is now believed post-COVID, but that one of the biggest ways that they can push discovery of their wines is being in a glass pour program, mm-hmm. right? So it's like that's the holy grail. It's getting your wine – on not the wine list, but on a glass pour mm-hmm. wine list at a top restaurant that's known for attracting people who like wine, mm-hmm. right? So I'm curious if, you know, first of all, do we think that's accurate or not? Mm-hmm. And then second, if it is or isn't, doesn't really matter, how relevant is the glass pour, pour program at this point in time to millennials mm-hmm. and through the basis really of price, right? Yeah. So right. as mm-hmm. we sort of discussed in the last millennial episode, one of the things that is hurting wine a lot is just rabid competition and the the willingness of consumers, especially millennials and Gen Z, to to switch, right? Mm-hmm. So to not go from like a too expensive red wine to a cheaper red wine or a cheaper white wine, but to go from a wine they think is a little bit too pricey to a cocktail. Yeah. Right. And it seems to me that that's probably one of the biggest threats to discovery of wine right now, because at least when I look at the majority of glass lists across the city, mm-hmm. those glass prices are often more expensive, equal or more expensive than the cocktails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a real problem. But yeah. before we get there, I'm curious if you both think and or if you have discovered wines through glass programs. Joanne, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely have. I think typically when I go out to a restaurant, I'm definitely I'm looking at I'm looking at the beverage list, yeah. which usually includes maybe cocktails, beer, and wine all together before I'm going to a wine list. Um, and I think that's that's certainly a more approachable way mm-hmm. for me to discover new and interesting wines before kind of making the leap to a full bottle. It's the first date, if you will. Right. Sure. Exactly. So, you know, I just want to try it, yeah. see, see how it goes before maybe swipe I, right, maybe I commit. Not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I still, I certainly do that still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that increasingly as, as wine, wines by the glass prices go up, there is a, you know, a moment of pause after the first cocktail where I'm like, well, should I try another cocktail or should I, should I get a, a get a glass of wine? Um, but I think, because the, the prices are comparable or wine is more, yeah, uh, is more expensive. So I think that it is, I think it's a useful tool f- for discovery for me, um, but is less so now as the prices go up. Yeah. I mean, I think, and Zach, obviously I want to hear what you have to say sure. too, right. but, but I think like you have a little bit of a different perspective because you've come from running glass programs exactly. too. Yep. I think, you know, for me with, with glass pours, 
there definitely is the opportunity for discovery, but I think it's a lot less than wineries think it is. Yeah. I, mm. it, my, my challenge would be that where it feels like it is, is you're, you're having to buy so much volume mm. for a glass pour program that wineries get to sell through a lot. Mm. But I actually don't think a lot of consumers are really paying attention to what the wine is. And it's like, it's like, oh, I want a white that's like a Chardonnay and this happens to be there and it's around my price point, so I'll drink it. I definitely have found myself ordering wines much less by the glass than I did in my like when you were younger my, my baby wine days <laughs> I feel like now I I, I see the econ- economics of buying a bottle mm-hmm. yeah. right I am usually with one or more people mm-hmm. so there it just makes sense yeah that's a that's a really good point I think also like purchasing a bottle of wine while you're out it's like it's a big bigger expense yeah obviously so and the only time now which is weird I, this might just be a me thing but i'm curious if this resonates with you guys or any of our listeners the only time i find myself drinking wine by the glass is when i'm sitting at a bar yeah hmm. like if i'm at the bar of a restaurant or like i'm at a wine bar and i'm actually at the bar mm-hmm. i don't know what it is but like when i when i go to a restaurant my first drink if it's not a bottle of wine is going to be a cocktail. I, mm-hmm. I've, I'm very rare to have a glass of wine, like, hey, let's start with a glass of white, and then move on to a bottle. I'm mm-hmm. usually going to have a cocktail, and then I'm either have a bottle of red, and then if there's enough people, then we'll have a bottle, I mean, sorry, a bottle of white, and then we'll have a bottle of red, mm-hmm. or I'm going to have a cocktail, and then I'm going to have one bottle with myself and Naomi. Like, that's right. what we do. But if I'm at the bar, I'll have, like, this last time when I was at Union Square Cafe, right, I met a friend for a drink. We had two glasses of wine each. Mm-hmm. Right. We had glasses. We didn't split a bottle. We just split a bottle at the bar. But don't you think that if a place has a really compelling wine program and they have great wines by the glass, it's a great way to try different 100%. wines before you want to buy a, or without even getting a bottle. 100%. Have, and yeah. I, I guess that's, that's maybe when I would do it only at a wine bar. Like, yeah. And then it would be at a wine bar when right. like they're not also trying to do cocktails. Although now a lot of wine, wine bears, bar. bars yeah. also are doing cocktails. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. But Zach, what do you think? Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, the wine bar piece of this is really fascinating and I think is a place where a lot of this kind of discovery does happen, where mm-hmm. the pr- kind of person who goes into a wine bar is probably more inclined to be viewing that experience as a yeah. chance to try something new, expand their experience with wine, maybe discover a new favorite, and is going to be paying mm-hmm. a lot more attention to the labels, to the names of the producers. It might even make a note, hey, I really like this wine. Maybe, you know, maybe in a in places where this is legal, maybe I'll get a bottle to go, or maybe uh, other places I'll look it up, I'll, I'll figure some way out to get it. I think in restaurant settings, and this was my experience running restaurant wine programs for years, that a, a, a small fraction of people who ordered wine by the glass cared at all who made it. You know, they wanted to, mm-hmm. they, they had probably the variety or style in mind. You know, they wanted a glass of Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir or whatever. And basically, you know, they said, okay, I'll have a glass of Pinot. And you would sort of be like, okay, here's the Pinot Noir we have. And they'd be like, great, you know, whatever. They don't, they're not. Or like the closest thing you have to it, right? Exactly. If you don't have the mm-hmm. thing they're looking for. And and that whole dynamic is, I think, evidence to the point that you were making at the outset, Adam, which is like, it's probably not a great avenue for discovery for wineries, but it is, as you described, a great uh, outlet for wine. Like mm-hmm. we went through a lot of glass pour wines in a in a week in a month, um, and restaurants and distri- and distributors who represented, uh, sorry, wineries and uh, distributors who represented, you know, wines coveted those glass pour placements, not 
so much for the sake of discovery, but because it was a way to move their inventory. You know, if you're selling, as I was at one point, three cases of Cabernet Sauvignon by the glass a, a, a week, you know, even if that rest, uh, winery or that distributor, that price point is lower, they're maybe not making the same margin, like that volume matters, right? That mm-hmm. that drives yeah. a lot of, of revenue and, and moves their inventory in a way that a bottle placement on the list, even if it's a, a nicer wine, just, you know, I'm going to sell a fraction of what I sold by the glass because that's how a lot yeah. of people do. You know, we may not be great examples of people who go in and buy a lot of wine by the glass, but certainly in my experience, that was a pretty big chunk of our wine sales everywhere I worked were, were wines by the glass because people mm-hmm. are – yeah out with people who have different tastes in wine or someone at the table wants a cocktail, someone wants a beer, someone wants wine, you know, you're not always going to reach that kind of uh, agreement on a bottle, um, even if I think that would be good for people a lot of the time, both financially and just experientially. But the Mm -hmm. other thing I wanted to add here too, is that one other thing that I think that wineries don't always contemplate when it comes to sort of trying to get into the glass pour program Mm -hmm. is if you're way of doing that is through a second label or creating a wine that is solely intended for on-premise glass pour purposes because you're hmm. purchasing fruit yeah. or you're or you're you know you're kind of looking at stuff that's left over after you've made your more expensive wines sometimes it can actually show your winery in not the best light like i think there is that's some really downside to being like for your main point of access for most drinkers to be like not that you're not proud of that wine. I think a lot of winemakers are proud of all the wines they make, but there's there's some truth to the notion that if it's not quite just odds and ends, it is in a lot of cases sort of like, well, we have all this wine left over. Let's put it together in a way that makes it the best it can be, but it's not necessarily the the showcase for the vineyard, the winemaker's talents, et cetera, that other wines that they make are. And it can sometimes turn people off. You know, I, I've definitely experienced that a few times, both in tasting wines and in in selling them to people is, you know, they try the glass pour and they're just like, eh, it's all right, I guess I'll have something else. And like right. that, that. Right. And you're you like, know, man, but if you knew the stuff this producer really made, you would, you would love it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I hadn't ever thought about that, but that <clears throat> that's definitely something to think about that, like, you know, the and this this leads us into our second part of our conversation, right? Which is that I think a lot of the times they these second labels are created for cost, right? Mm-hmm. In order to provide something where they can give somewhat of a value to the consumer by the glass. But if you are then if this is a, is a product that's only really available by the glass, right? So it's hard for the consumer to then find as well. It's often that the consumer, from what I've found too, like falls in love with a wine by the producer, not necessarily just a producer, right? You have to have the producer over and over and over again in order to be like, you know what? Everything that X wine producer makes, I trust, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to drink, but I love X wine from the producer. And if you've never been able to have X wine, so all you've had is their glass pour, and then you can't find that glass pour at, say, your local wine shop because you only have the other wines that maybe are more expensive, as Zach's saying, I, I don't think that that really helps with this discovery and making a long-term customer, right? Mm-hmm. You want them to be able to find the exact wine they had by the glass at the wine shop the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there is there, there continues to be that disconnect in the wine industry where, like, the, the producers don't understand that, mm-hmm. right? It's like, these are my on-premise wines, these are my off-premise wines. Right. And I also think that, you know, you, I think Adam in particular, you probably could speak to this in some sense, just, you know, kind of with your business background. But I think also wineries often make the inaccurate assumption that all it takes is someone having one glass of your wine to convert them into a customer. Yeah. And like, that's just not how it works. They have to mm-hmm. try that wine over and over again. And, you know, that it happens. I don't mean to say it never does. But, you know, the, the odds that someone is going to drink, again, a glass of wine, a glass pour at a restaurant um, and 
and then just suddenly be like, oh my God, I got to join this wine club tomorrow. Like Mm -hmm. that shit does not happen. I also have to add one other piece here before we move into pricing because I think it's important. The other downside for for wineries treating restaurant glass pour lists as a point of discovery is that, and I hate to say this, a lot of glass pour wines in restaurants are handled really poorly. The bottle might be open for several days. It might be stored in, you know, not in ideal conditions. It might be, I mean, shit, I go into, you go into restaurants and sometimes the glass pours are like, the bottles are like, you know, in full sunlight. They're somewhere easy to reach, but might not be, uh, you know, might be too warm. Like the, the glasses of white wine might be in a super cold refrigerator and served like almost ice cold to people. Like it is mm-hmm. not the optimal experience for enjoying wine. Glass pour wines in restaurants mostly exist for the person who wants a glass of wine but for whatever set of reasons, you know, again, company, price, et cetera, does not, cannot or will not get a bottle of wine, which in almost all cases in a restaurant is going to give you almost certainly a slightly better experience, if not a vastly mm-hmm. better experience, just because some of those mm-hmm. variables are taken out of out of the equation. The wine is opened at your table. Like, you don't have to wonder how recently that bottle was opened. And and that, I think, is the other thing that that a lot of wineries don't really consider when thinking about this, which is just like... You know, the wine, unless you're in a, a a really good quality wine bar or a restaurant, and again, fine, but there aren't that many of those places, your glass pour wine is just, it's going to be beaten up. That's just the reality of restaurants. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and also to your earlier point, like if people are ordering without even looking at the menu for something that's closest to the wine that they're looking for, they wouldn't necessarily know the producer to come back to it anyway. Yeah. I mean, like, look, just to take it back to business for a second, I think the magic number that a lot of people talk about is in terms of trials three times. Right. So like, you know, if you, if you think about that as a producer, right. And especially this is why, again, I always have this like argument with, with wine producers is like, Oh my God, like our biggest win ever is we got in and we're a glass pour at, you know, let's, let's say some really expensive, very like we're, we're the glass pour at, 11 Madison Park mm-hmm. or the glass pour at, you know, some, some other Michelin star, crazy special occasion place. Right. Cool. Who is coming back two more times <laughs> to have that glass pour? Nobody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, you, you're almost like your biggest win is like, you're the glass pour at the neighborhood restaurant right. that yeah. someone that people go to weekly. That's the win, mm-hmm. right? That's actually where you, that's where you hook the consumers. It's not being the glass pour at the special occasion restaurant that people can't afford once in your life. Right. Or yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, I, the, the amount of like Michelin star restaurants in, in New York city that I've been to is very small. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've never been back to, I've never refrequented any of them. Yeah, yeah. Right. So like, <laughs> I think that's always such an issue for me with these producers because I get it. Like there's prestige behind that restaurant and it makes you feel really cool to be in that restaurant and say like, you know what? Like I'm the glass port Morea. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Morea is a great restaurant, but the amount of people that normally eat at Morea are like Michael Bloomberg and a few, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and I know that because apparently he was a regular, one of my friends was a Psalm there and said they saw him all the time, but like mm-hmm. that, you know, that's very, very rare. Like it's a bunch of very wealthy people that are regulars at places like that. And they probably have someone else who's choosing the wine for them and filling their collections. <laughs> yeah, right? Are they so, drinking the glass pours anyhow? Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like okay, you want to, you want to be the glass pour at the local neighborhood spot. So mm-hmm. once you are the glass pour though, your next problem is you are fighting against cocktails right and i think this is the the thing that we the three of us have noticed a lot recently is it really feels like the glass pours are becoming more expensive than the cocktails and then if you're making an economic decision Mm -hmm. you're gonna choose a cocktail every time 
And I know there's a lot of people can't do about this. Wine is an agricultural product. It's the nature of making it right. It is expensive mm-hmm. to make. Yeah. Wine is exp- an expensive, expensive product to make. But then maybe we have to do a better job of explaining that to consumers of like why it costs more. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to like it's this alcohol delivery system or that alcohol delivery system, it just always feels like the cocktail wins based on price. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to, I mean, I wanted to ask you both because I'm not actually sure of this. If, if you know, the SVB report mentioned that wine is suffering on premise like pretty yes. badly like yeah. wh- what's wh- which came first like the price is being too high for people to purchase it and it doing badly on premise or or it doing badly on premise and then the 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 price is being too high and will the prices only continue to go up for wines by the glass as a result of this hmm. that's a good question i think that to some extent the price creep predates some of the like wine really suffering against um mm-hmm. cocktails in particular cocktails, and yeah. and I think this for two reasons one of it one of them is that the price creep is I think a function of of two related but sort of discrete phenomena in restaurants the first is and this may have been going on longer in some places like maybe in New York City than in other places but a sort of universal shift from uh the default pour for a glass of wine being 6 ounces to 5 ounces um mm. which doesn't seem like a big deal but is the difference between four and a little bit pours in a bottle versus five full pours if you're really precise in a, in a restaurant? A, a bottle of wine, a standard 750 milliliter bottle of wine has 25.4 ounces of, of liquid in it. And so you're getting you know exactly five pours basically mm. um, for a glass pour if you're pouring a five ounce glass. But when p- places either shifted over to five ounces from four or sorry, from six or they shifted over or they that's how they opened – Pricing didn't adjust, right? Places didn't say, okay, well, we're going to drop the cost of each glass a little bit to kind of offset the fact that like we're getting more out of a bottle and or, you know, people are getting less for what they paid. Um, Pricing stayed the same. And Mm -hmm. I think you have seen just a rapaciousness in, in the industry broadly for deriving profit from drinks right this has affected cocktails too but i think Mm -hmm. it's it's been most glaring in wine you know when i started uh, running wine programs you know the default sort of markup for a glass pour of wine was basically one of you kind of looked at it one of two ways you basically charged um you know the bottle price per glass right so the bottle cost you wholesale thirteen dollars a glass was thirteen dollars right you were marking Mm -hmm. up the wine and this was in a, a places where you got a six ounce pour um and you know that model has remained co- pretty constant but I, mm-hmm. but you know you start seeing places that are like and i know this because you know c- certainly here in seattle i have a pretty good handle on what wholesale costs for a lot of wines are mm-hmm. uh, and you start to see okay well now they're charging the bottle costs them 13 bucks but they think they can get 15 dollars a glass right and like mm-hmm. you're just starting to see this push up because operators are you know desperate for profit understandably and beverage alcohol in general is a is both seen as a place where you can you know kind of fudge it a little bit because people aren't super aware of what the cost is for the restaurant and it's it's an optional thing you know in most places you know some some spaces wine bars and stuff maybe are a little more price sensitive because they realize that that's really what people are coming in for but in a lot of restaurants places are really concerned with their food pricing because that's the thing that people look at first they that's the menu that they consult first and it's easier to hide price increases in beverage alcohol than it is in uh, you know, an entree or a salad or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like people just recoil uh, when you cross certain thresholds with those items, even if it's what you should be charging, you know, to kind of cover your costs and all that. The mm-hmm. last thing I'll say about this, and then I'm, I'm really curious your guys' thoughts, 
is that in addition to sort of this price creep issue, you've also had um, kind of along with this, I'm not sure if I would call it price creep exactly, but this this thing where I don't know if it's always conscious, but restaurants have looked at to be either distinct and different or or maybe to hide price increases. They've looked for sort of either more and more obscure wines. Um, so, you yeah, know, instead true. of having instead of having a glass pour Cabernet Sauvignon, they'll have a glass pour something that they tell you is like a Cabernet Sauvignon, right? Maybe it's a, mm-hmm. a Triga Nacional from Portugal or something. And this is not to knock any of these wines. Like there are lots of great wines out there, but they're not then charging they're, they're still charging you kind of Cabernet Sauvignon-esque prices for a wine that is that is not that. They're, they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too when it comes to lowering their cost, maybe maybe in their eyes offering a distinctive experience and yet still charging, you know, sort of premium variety prices for what are not, to be fair, premium varieties. And that I've that has this, also yeah. been an mm-hmm. ongoing thing and has a lot of different factors that play into it. But I think it's it's you know, it's kind of created this upswell of pricing that, yeah, has sort of somehow pushed one. I mean, when I started working in restaurants, you know, the cheapest thing you could get to drink when you went out was a beer, but a glass of wine was very distinctly less expensive than a cocktail, you know, most yeah. cocktails. Um, and, and if you were the person who was ordering cocktails, man, like you were the fancy one, right? Like you could have a glass of wine for 10 bucks and a cocktail would cost you 12 or 13 and a beer would be, you know, six or seven or whatever, five or six actually at that point. And, and now like, you know, wine has just skyrocketed past cocktails. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is as you were, as you were chatting, I was thinking about this, like what's, what I think is the most sort of interesting that I've seen in the last few years is that for the most part, cocktail prices are all the same on a list, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. if the restaurant decides that Mm -hmm. the cocktails, the program is 16 bucks for the most part, all the cocktails 16, maybe one of them is 18 and they'll say that like it has premium Premium spirits spirits, (laughs) uh, or things like that. Right. But for the most part, like this is the cocktail list and there's six or seven cocktails all at 15, 16, 17 bucks, whatever that, that neighborhood also bear Mm -hmm. is willing to bear. Right. You can go to the West village and they're all 22 or something. Right. And then the wine prices, like there might be one, one glass of wine around the same price of the cocktails Mm -hmm. and then everything else is higher. Right. So like, you know, you'll have a, a one wine that's all 16 and then three that are 20, one that's 22 and one that's 25. They're like, this is a special glass board that we're only offering this week. Right. And it's, you know, we dug into the cellar and that's cool for mm-hmm. the people that want to do that. But I do think that also becomes more you have actually less exploration. And so the other re- way that you're trapping the consumers, the consumers say, OK, well, the, the one or two glass pours that I'm not interested in. Sorry, that are at the same price. That are cheapest. Right. Yeah. That are, are the same price as the cocktail. I'm not that interested in, right? One right. was, a, I don't know, a Chardonnay and the other one was a Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Let's pick on the one that, that Zach's already talking about, right? <laughs> and then there's eight cocktail varieties. Right. And I like tequila and I'm really into bourbon and whatever. So I can get down with this and I feel like I have more choice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go with the cocktail list because of that. Because while I'm really interested in the other wines on the list – they're more expensive and I'm just not going to play that game tonight or I don't want to take that risk or whatever. So they don't. And I think that also seems to be much more of a recent phenomenon, like last five, six years. It was much more common, I feel like, again, when I was like baby wine drinker, where the the, the glass pours were all the same price. Mm-hmm. It was like, here's our four wines by the glass, all at 14 bucks. And that's definitely changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, something else that I've seen that I think is really interesting on on Wines by the Glass list is, you know, putting the bottle price next to it as well. Yeah. To yeah. kind of incentivize. The bottle, uh, the bottle purchase. The bottle purchase, yeah. right. Like, this actually makes more sense for you to buy this bottle, um, which I think is an interesting decision. Um, but to your point, Adam, I think... Something else that I think of when I'm looking at this list or make, you know, if I'm I'm out to dinner with a group of people and we're getting cocktails or wines by the glass, I don't want to be the shithead who orders the more, the the most expensive thing. Right. Especially if you're just splitting the bill equally, which is what most people do. And I'm like, oh, so I guess I'll just like, I'll get, if everyone else is getting a cocktail, I'll get a cocktail as well because I'm not going to order the wine that I think I would like, yeah. but because it's more expensive than everything else. Yeah. I mean, like I'd love to be baller status where I just like go out to dinner with friends. I'm like, yo, I got the bill, right. but that still doesn't happen as often <laughs> as I would like it to. I like to treat when I can, but like, yes. And I do think though that, that you, you know, when you get past a certain age, usually it's like after you've, I don't know, after your, your first few years with a job, you stop itemizing the mm-hmm. bill, right? You just split it evenly. Right. But then when you're splitting it evenly, you, I mean, your point is so spot on. You don't, you don't want to be the, the prick that ordered the steak when everyone else ordered pasta. Like yeah. <laughs> no one wants to be that person. You get a reputation, right. right? So like if you're the person when everyone else ordered cocktails and you're like, oh, that $25 glass pour they said is the special. It sounds really good to me today. Like I'm going to get that. Yeah. You're an asshole. Like mm-hmm. people be like, oh my God. Like, we all have those friends. We right? all have those friends <laughs> and they all sort of know that they're that friend too. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Because they're splitting. And they don't care. They're like, yeah, I'm here for the even split. Like, you know, and oh, I hate that. Um, they tend to get, they tend to get asked out to dinner less and less. You know what I mean? They're like, they're yeah. Like, so oh, if you're Adam's friend and you're wondering why he hasn't invited you to dinner. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Sorry, I want to, I want to add um, one piece to this really quick about the specifically about the wine versus cocktail thing, which I think is also important mm-hmm. to note here is like, there's also an element of like, the cocktail is made to order for you. It feels like a yeah. special thing, right? The the bar has All the, the restaurant has, mm-hmm. yeah has yeah. come up with a recipe. The glass the, the glassware is just like they bring over a fucking glass. Half the time, it's already been poured away from the table, even if it's poured table side. Like it just, just does not. You don't feel special getting a glass of you know Malbec or whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, we said it before too. It's like it's a better value, right? You're like, Oh, yeah. this, uh, more work is going into this. So yeah, exactly. It's worth spending the 16 or $17. 100%. Yeah. Plus, honestly, as we talked about, you know, at the beginning, it also probably has more alcohol in it. Like a three ounce yeah, cocktail right. is almost yeah, yeah. certainly going to have more booze in it than a five ounce glass pour. Like, and obviously mm-hmm. that's not the consideration that everyone uses, but it's a consideration that some people use. And if the, mm-hmm. if all the, if it's cheaper and boozier and feels more special, like, no shit. No wonder people are not getting glass pours of wine as often. Like it sounds like a dumb choice. And and in some ways probably it is. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is you know, sitting here just thinking about human psychology. I'd never fully thought about the bottle price next to the glass pour until you mentioned it, Joanna. Mm. And I think that, I think that the way that restaurants believe it's helping is it's enticing you, but the way it's also sh- like hurting is it showing the consumer what almost a, how they're getting fucked right right it's like this is you this know is a bad price for yeah this, wine this, is, by the this glass. is not a great price for this glass yeah. like because the consumer does wait okay this is divided by ooh, divided by four. Yeah, this, like, is, this is not equal yeah. <laughs> this is not the same price mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's like oh shit the cocktail mm-hmm. and again it's just all these ways that i think i i still i really do seem to when i also have gotten a wines by the glass in the past it also is First of all, at the bar, mm-hmm. but then it's always at a restaurant where it's there's just a glass price. The mm-hmm. more I'm thinking about my own behavior, it's like this is their glass list. 
It's wines by the glass. I'm sure if I asked them, if I said I really love this bottle of, you know, Etna Bianco from Benanti, I'm sure they would sell it to me. But there is nowhere on that Union Square Cafe list where you can find that price unless I probably went digging in the overall wine list. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very smart decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, don't tell me how I'm getting fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) know. Because I only wanted a glass. Mm -hmm. Right. So I shouldn't know. I think that, yeah, that's that's a really interesting observation i think there's i think i want to talk about the opportunity for sparkling wine yes in this because i think that you know a lot of people start with a cocktail and then move Mm -hmm. on to wine if if they move on to wine at all but i think sparkling wine could be a very good place to start for people and that's where i think it should be competitively priced so that people opt for it instead of a cocktail i agree and i think that it should be competitively priced with lots of different varieties, of, mm-hmm. like I think maybe what, there's one sparkling wine by the glass. Like what's so depressing to me, yeah, it's like one or two, mm-hmm. and one's always at this point a prosecco mm-hmm. for the most part, which we're actually going to talk about for you know we're planning to talk about later this week for our Friday episode. Little plug, uh, <laughs> but you know it's always prosecco, and then maybe it's a cava or like if you're at a restaurant in Brooklyn, it's probably a pet nat. But like it's <laughs> it, give me five or six, yeah. You know, and I get it. It's it's you have to open them, and so then you're worried about them going flat. I get why the li- that part of the list is small, but I think there's a huge opportunity there. You're 100 percent right mm-hmm. that they could you could be stealing the share from me. I actually wonder now, thinking about myself, if there was more of a variety of by the glass sparkling, mm-hmm. if I would order a glass of sparkling prior to my meal as opposed to a cocktail, because mm-hmm. I I want something right. before I go and in, get into the bottle, mm-hmm. and I, I love sparkling wine. We all know this, yeah. but there's, but there's not a lot of options ever. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, like I'm never, I'm not, I'm not investing in a bottle of champagne with Naomi and then a bottle of red. What are we? <laughs> Who are you? I'm drink a bottle of wine a person. <laughs> also, you guys know my wife, she's really little. She's five, three. I can't do this. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So like, it's just, yeah, it's, it's never going to happen, but I think I would, I would, mm-hmm. I would not do the cocktail first and then the bottle. I would do a bottle. I would do a glass of sparkling wine if I had mm-hmm. opportunities. Mm-hmm. Jenna, you should run a wine program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this has been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We, we continue to get amazing emails, uh, even yes, one today from people who, who listen to the millennial episode. So please let us know your thoughts, what you think about, you know, the Buy Last program, where you think it works, where it doesn't, especially if you work currently in a restaurant and your one of your jobs is building a, a glass program we'd mm-hmm. love to hear what you think about this hit us up at podcast it's always super interesting to hear from everybody and as always please like rate and review always helps more people discover the show and zach and joanna talk to you friday see you friday sounds great Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.